Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. You are watching a most unusual edition of the Mother of All Talk Shows. Unusual for several reasons. First of all, our American viewers and listeners are just joining us now because of the change of clocks. Uh, they missed the first hour of the show, but mind you, so did I. I was going to talk about the nightmare journey, uh, which included false imprisonment on a train with no air, no water, and the doors locked sitting in Northampton Station with people beginning to, well, faint was the least of it. We had a pregnant woman. We had several people who seemed to be suffering from claustrophobic anxiety it was baking hot, and there we were looking through a locked window at a railway station which was full of fresh air, but they would not let us out even though we were three and a half hours late on our journey. I was going to talk about the inadequacies, uh, the negligence, uh, the total bankrupt failure of Arriva West Coast trains, but I'll leave that till next week when I want to have a proper deep dive into the transport situation in this country. We have the farcical situation where we have the big uh, COP uh, uh, environmental conference going on in Glasgow and the entire British press corps was uh, unable to get there because of, uh, well, water on the line or trees bringing down uh, overhead power cables because, of course, rain on the 31st of October came as a complete surprise to Britain's railway companies. I was going to talk about it at length tonight, but breaking news means that it would not be seemly to do so. There is a report of a train crash uh, with uh, uh, fire engines and ambulances uh, racing to the scene. Uh, uh, near Andover, I think. I've no idea how serious a train crash it is, uh, but out of respect to those caught up in a much more serious situation on the railway than the one I have just been through, uh, I will leave that to uh, breaking news and we'll discuss uh, Britain's trains next week. But I warn you, Arriva West Coast, Avanti West Coast, I keep mixing up the insurance company. Maybe it's I'm preparing my legal case against Avanti Trains. I warn you, Avanti Trains, I'm not going to go easy on you. I told you tonight that I was almost lost for words, but I won't be lost for words next Sunday. So the long and the short of all that was, I'm an hour late for my show also, and I really thank my colleagues in the studio for the emergency action that they had to take 
in interrupting normal programs. And of course, it goes without saying, I'm very grateful to the audience for sticking with us. We've been doing this a very long time. It's the first time that it has happened. And I hope that it is the last time. The interruption of normal programs, I hope, is not a harbinger of things to come. The Queen is poorly, maybe very poorly. They may be keeping from us just how poorly the 95-year-old monarch actually is. There are many, many reasons, hundreds of them, uh, to wish a speedy and full recovery uh, to Her Majesty the Queen. Long life to her. There are many hundreds of reasons. Uh, a woman who has given extraordinary public service, whether you're a monarchist or, like me, a Republican, one has to concede that. But one of the reasons why we must hope that Her Majesty manages to plough on is that if she does not, we will instantly, in an instant, have a new monarch, uh, the increasingly insufferable Prince Charles will now become our king. And that's going to be bad news for Britain. Bad news, I think, for the royal family also and the system of monarchy. Uh, bad news for politics in Britain, because as we saw again on the news today, uh, this prince just can't keep his nose out of political matters. He's learned nothing in his long years, decades of playing second fiddle to his mother about uh, staying out of controversial political matters. But when his interventions stink of hypocrisy to the extent of today's, uh, I think it was yesterday, but reported today, when that hypocrisy reaches a level uh, that one simply cannot stomach it, it makes you realize that uh, if he becomes the king anytime soon, he's going to be simply insufferable. He's going to be unstoppable. Every political issue uh, will be one that he seeks to seize the soapbox for while expecting due deference and indeed a measure of reverence to his position uh, in our uh, unwillingness, perhaps, to respond as robustly as you can be sure we will respond here on the mother of all talk shows. I refer, of course, to him wading in to the environmental debate. We've had many people on. We'll have many other people on. My apologies to Kevin McKenna that we weren't able to take him because of my absence in the first hour of the show. But we will next Sunday return to the subject of COP. But Prince Charles flew a private jet to Berlin to lecture the governments, elected governments for the most part, of the G20 about the need to give up so much of our normal way of life in the interests of stopping what they call the runaway train of global warming. He flew in a private jet to give that lecture, which he could have given, as I'm doing to you now via Zoom from a hotel room, in my case in Milton Keynes, a kind of Paris, 
uh, of England. If you've never been there, uh, don't try. But Milton Keynes is perfectly capable of hosting a Zoom speech, as I'm giving to you now. But Prince Charles flew in a private jet to Berlin. Then he flew back to London in a private jet from Berlin. Then he flew in another private jet to Glasgow, presumably to deliver exactly the same kind of homily. In fact, you can't move at Glasgow Airport for private jets. And of course, Air Force One, which must burn enough carbon to light Greenland in floodlights, arrived with President Biden's cavalcade in Scotland yesterday. Do you know how many cars are in Joe Biden's cavalcade at the COP conference? The COP conference to discuss global warming. It's a cavalcade of 88 zero vehicles, plus helicopters, plus Air Force One. These hypocrites, I don't know whether to laugh or cry at them crying into their cucumber smoothies about global warming. I know there's 80 cars because Joe Biden had a cavalcade of 80 cars in the Vatican. The smallest state in the world. There can be no room for any other vehicle other than President Biden's cavalcade. Mind you, the cavalcade was the least of the Pope's problems, reportedly. Because <clears throat> Joe Biden overstayed his welcome with his holiness. In fact, by double the time, Joe Biden extended his meeting with his holiness, not just with a cockamamie joke, which couldn't have been funny even when Ronald Reagan uttered it in his senility, and sure was lost on the Argentine Pope when translated into Italian. It was a joke which, punchline of which was, how old would you be if you didn't know how old you were? You'd be 65, he said to the Pope, and I'd be 60. Side-splitting stuff, but nothing to what was going on afterwards in the Pope's lavatory. I don't want to get too gruesome, so let me just say that we now have it on the highest authority that the President of the United States had a toilet accident in the Vatican. Holy shit. It's almost too excruciating to adumbrate. Uh, but it's true. The leader of what they laughingly call the free world can't control his own bowels. He can't control what comes out of his mouth. And now we know he can't control what comes out of his ass.
It must have been excruciating for His Holiness to be told that this toilet accident had occurred, especially if he then contemplated that this man's finger is on the nuclear button. This man is openly threatening China with war. This man is openly threatening Russia with war, Iran with war, Cuba with war, Venezuela with war, and he can't control his own bowel movements. For how long are the American people going to put up with this extreme humiliation? How long are the American people going to be required to suffer the ever-increasing embarrassment that is President Joe Biden? Now, of course, the hypocrites are all there. In rat-infested Glasgow, the worst-run city, in the worst-run part of the United Kingdom, with little nationalist go-lighters running around, promising native peoples everywhere their full support when they can't even collect their own dustbins. At midnight tonight, a dustbin strike starts in the city of Glasgow, a city that's deep in my heart that I represented in Parliament uh, for nearly two decades. Rats are the problem. The bin men just won't put up with them anymore. Not for the money they're getting paid. Why should they risk wheels disease, rats leaping out of overflowing bins? Oh, no. And the railway workers, they're on strike too. So good luck if you make it to Scotland. Don't imagine you're going to be catching a train or that you're going to see a single bin being emptied. We'll talk at length next week. We'll get Kevin McKenna back, if he will, uh, to deep dive into what happened at the hypocrites' convention of the uh, COP conference in Glasgow. Now, my next guest is a very, very good friend of mine, and he's here to talk about two important issues, not least because nobody else will talk about them. The first is the anniversary of the overthrow of the greatest of all African leaders, Patrice Lumumba, may God rest his soul. Patrice Lumumba, young, gifted and black, with vision, with a dedication to making what should be the richest country in Africa, the fairest and most just country in Africa, to make it a treasure trove for the peoples of Africa, to make it an armory for the liberation movements seeking to liberate what was then the rest of colonial-occupied Africa. Patrice Lumumba was murdered by Belgian colonialism, by American colonialism, and not least at all, not least by British colonialism. And another matter. I wrote a piece for RT.com just the other day about the discovery under the release uh, of government papers, which takes place 
every year, but 50 years too late, 30 years too late, sometime, which showed the centrality of the British government in the overthrow of the Indonesian independence leader, President Sukarno, who made Indonesia big in the world, where now it is small, who founded the non-aligned movement whose Bandung conference in that jewel of the Orient, the great city of Bandung, to which all the great figures of the non-aligned movement of the progressive parts of the world attended in the 1950s. He was brutally overthrown and wait for this number. As many as three million of his supporters were murdered in cold blood by the military led by General Suharto, who went on to spend decades in power as the greatest thief in the world, rivaling his African counterpart, Mobuto Seso Seko, who of course helped in the murder of Patrice Lumumba. The Killing Season is a book that my good wife, who is Indonesian, is reading uh, right now by Jeffrey uh, B. Robinson. The Killing Season is a book that moved her to tears on the train coming down this afternoon. Uh, Vijay Prashad is an erudite author, commentator, and activist. But just before... I interview him. Let me give you this breaking news that two trains have crashed between Andover and Salisbury in Wiltshire in the United Kingdom. Somber news indeed will bring you more of it uh, when we can. I never know which continent I'm going to find him on, and I don't know tonight either which continent he's on. That's because he is an intellectual colossus in the movement for liberation and for justice in the world. And wherever there is injustice, you'll find his pen and his magnificent brain analyzing it. I hope he's there now, wherever he is. Vijay, thank you very much for joining me. Where do I find you this evening? Well, I'm on my way, um, George, and it's great to be with you. I'm on my way to Glasgow. So um, I don't know which train I'm going to take, and I'm very sorry to hear about those train accidents um, and the downed lines and so on, but I hesitate, uh, but yet I shall say it, this might have something to do with the privatization of rail in the United Kingdom. Uh, typically when one sees this happen, there's underfunding of infrastructure and so on, and it leads to a loss of life, but I'll be with you in Glasgow very soon. Well, God willing, uh, and uh, I hope you survive the uh, the infestation of rats that I spoke about earlier. There's some two-legged rats going to be there also, VJ. so keep your eyes open for them. And watch you don't get run over by Joe Biden's 80-car uh, uh, cavalcade. And, of course, don't go in the lavatory right after him. Now, uh, VJ, uh, serious matters. Uh, do you agree with my analysis that Patrice Lumumba was the greatest of all African leaders, or certainly would have become so if imperialism had not overthrown him? You see, George, 
the continent of Africa has never been given a chance in the modern period to set its own clock to its own time. Uh, sovereignty has been denied to that continent. Let's go before Patrice Lumumba. The real originator of the independence and sovereignty of Africa were the people of Ghana. Leading them, of course, was Kwame Nkrumah, another leader, close friend of Patrice Lumumba. In fact, Patrice Lumumba of the Congo considered Kwame Nkrumah as his mentor, as his leader. Nkrumah was overthrown in a bloody coup in Ghana. Of course, the coup against Lumumba was terrible. This is, as you said, one of the most important, significant countries on the continent of Africa. And then three, three and a half decades later, our very great leader, Thomas Sankara, picks up the mantle from Kwame Nkrumah, picks up the mantle from Patrice Lumumba. You know, Mr. Sankara led a country which was called Upper Volta, and he decided that as part of the, you know, the ability to produce dignity among his people, he changed the name of Upper Volta, a ridiculous colonial name. He changed it to Burkina Faso, which means land of upright people. In a way, Patrice Lumumba was trying to create a land of upright people, and they were not allowed. He was murdered, not only by um, the Congolese elites and others who didn't like him, but specifically by the Belgians, Belgian colonialism, assisted by the US col uh, colonials and by the British uh, intelligence services. There's a very significant British intelligence officer, Daphne Park. She said later in her life that, yes, we were involved. We helped do it. Um, it's a crime against humanity because ever since then, George, Congo has never been able to stand up to be what it could be. In other words, the heart central focus of Africa. The West did three coups, George, in three different countries around the same time to cut down the ability of these continents to rise up. The coup against Congo in 1961, the coup against Brazil in 1964, and the coup against Indonesia in 1965. Each of the main continents of the global south faced a major coup d'etat led by the West uh, to prevent these continents, not only these countries, from standing up against imperialism. And not to mention the overthrow of the democratically elected prime minister of Iran uh, not many years before that. Uh, this, I mean, it, it's, it's trite almost. It was that these leaders could not be trusted to govern their countries in the interests of the powerful Western countries. Isn't that so? You know, let's stay with the Congo for a minute, George, because people don't talk about what was at the heart of this. Do you know that the Congo was seen as the principal producer of what the CIA called industrial diamonds? You know, industrial diamonds, George, is a code word for uranium. The uranium used in the two atom bombs that were exploded at Hiroshima and Nagasaki came from the Congo, from one particular mine in the Congo. Um, right up to the 19, late 1960s, the West, particularly the United States, worried deeply that if they didn't secure Congolese uranium, 
then the Soviets would get their hands on it. Uh, the Congo produced some of the highest grade of uranium. There was a real problem in the US government because they pledged to buy uranium from Canada, but if they actually um, took the Canadian offer at hand, they'd have to neglect buying the Congolese uranium. They didn't want to do that. They wanted control of all uranium sources. And until the Congo won its independence in 1960-61, the, the uranium that arrived in the United States was invoiced as Belgian uranium. Belgium doesn't have any uranium. It's like talking about Brazzaville's diamonds. There are no diamonds in Brazzaville. That was diamonds from the Congo that used to be smuggled in collusion with the French into Brazzaville across the river from what was then Leopoldsville and would be sold as Brazzaville diamonds. No, there is no Belgian uranium. It was from the Congo. And it was uranium that just fixed the mind of the CIA fixed the mind of British intelligence. They just didn't want the Soviets to get involved uh, with being able to access, not, not only control, but access the uranium from the Congo. It was uranium in the Congo. It was oil in Brazil. Um, you know, Jao Gulat, who was overthrown in the coup in 1964, was moving ahead to nationalize the oil. What the United States and British intelligence just didn't want to see happen in Brazil was for this very large country, the largest country in South America, to provide an example to other countries that you could nationalize key sectors of the economy. You know, uh, uh, Kwame Nkrumah was doing something unforgivable. He refused to merely produce cacao, you know, the raw material for chocolate. He refused. He said, Ghana will not forever be producing the raw material for chocolate. We want to advance. We want to create uh, aluminum, not just sell bauxite. We want to process our own goods. We want to industrialize. All of that is unacceptable. And I must say, when you read the record in the CIA archive, you get the most racist kind of language talking about how these people are still in the trees. You know, they can't uh, be seen to walk on the land and so on. You get a British intelligence officer, P.B. Whitstanley, writing about Brazil, saying, well, you know, their development can only go so far as their mulattoes can, can handle. This is the racist colonial attitude, but it's rooted, George, in the fact that there are precious raw materials that the West thought was their patrimony. Nobody else could access it. And of course, um, in the case of Congo, uh, they had to, it was not credible to go back to Belgian direct rule. Uh, so they had to find a credible uh, patsy uh, to pretend to be the decision maker, the president. And they found the army officer, Mobuto Seso Seko, who went on actually to perhaps be the biggest thief of the 20th century. Uh, he, he stole literally billions of dollars from this exceedingly rich country uh, of uh, the Congo. How did he manage to stay in power so long, Vijay? Well, Mobuto, or Joseph Mobuto, as he was before, was a very smart man because he insinuated himself in the 1950s into the ranks both of Belgian intelligence and of the CIA. 
And on top of all that, George, he was a very close personal advisor to Lumumba. Lumumba trusted him. At one point when Lumumba became prime minister, Mobutu was removed from control of the army and he complained and Lumumba in a very teary moment brought him back in. I mean, one of the problem with people like Lumumba and so on is we are softies, we are sentimentalists. You know, people of the left are sentimentalists. He Not me, VJ. Not me. Not you. Well, maybe not you, George, but too many, there's too many examples of this that we see. Um, Mobutu comes to power eventually after Lumumba is captured and then, and then brutally murdered. Um, brutally murdered. I mean, his body is dissolved in acid and so on. Uh, the first strategy with the Congo was to break the Congo up with a series of secession movements in Katanga and South Kasai and so on. That was not necessary once Lumumba was overthrown. Mobutu arrives as the strong man in the same way as Suharto was the strong man in, in Indonesia. Um, and the Western intelligence services fully backed them. You know, British intelligence, George, plays a key role in all of these because what British intelligence does, and let me just be very frank with you, what the British Broadcasting Corporation does, the BBC, is it provides a kind of intellectual cover for these dictatorships. The BBC has a long history of collaborating one way or the other with British intelligence to basically do an information operation, you know, and kind of psychops um, to say, well, actually, you know, there was uh, Lumumba was getting too close to the Soviets, so he was doing his own coup. Or in Indonesia, they accused the left, the communist left, of attempting a coup um, and therefore and, and trying to go after the military and justifying the military crackdown, including the murder of millions of communists. Um, there was, as I said, a, a, a British intelligence involvement in Indonesia in that coup of 1965. Um, the British were very worried that the government of Mr. Um, Sukarno was going to challenge British base in Singapore. You see, the British relied on Singapore. Singapore and Malaysia had just divided. Uh, Lee Kuan Yew became the premier of Singapore. A very large part of Singapore's governance uh, was dominated by the British Foreign Office. There was a base there. The British saw the Straits of Malacca essentially as their sea. And Indonesia was going to challenge this. So from Singapore, uh, there was a, a, a British you know, intelligence base set up. Mr. Wynne was the British intelligence officer. And they were producing these newsletters in the build-up to the coup, which were basically filled with um, false information about what the communists were threatening to do. And they built up support among the Australians. The Australians played a key role in the coup and murder in Indonesia in 1965. The Australians were faxing in the old days of, actually, I think they may have been telex machines. They were sending by telex uh, lists of names of people that should be uh, eliminated. In fact, Jeffrey Robinson, whose book you just showed, had a previous book on Bali, you know, the paradise of Bali. That book was called The Other Side of Paradise, in which Robinson details how information was coming from Western intelligence services quite granular detail of which people to pick up and who to kill. Um, we haven't really, I think, as a planet come to terms with what these coups, the coup in 
Congo, the coup in Brazil, and the coup in Indonesia meant? We haven't really come to terms, George. Well, well, the better for hearing from you tonight about it, and let's hope it encourages uh, wider reading on these matters. Good luck on your uh, journey to Glasgow. Stay safe. Vijay Prashad, thank you for coming on the mother of all talk shows. Uh, now we've got a poll running. Would you support a tax on meat to help the environment? A mighty 17% of you say yes. 83% of you say no. You can vote now on my Twitter feed, on YouTube and on my Telegram channel. Uh, let me tell you further about the train crash. Uh, it's uh, coming out of Wiltshire, United Kingdom tonight. Further information reaches us that the incident involved two trains. It's being reported that they collided inside a tunnel. Almost impossible to imagine. One of the trains involved was the 1720 Great Western Service out of London Waterloo to Honiton in Devon. The incident happened at the Fisherton Tunnel on the outskirts of Salisbury. It's believed that the collision happened near Greatley between Andover and Salisbury. Emergency services, God bless them, from Dorset and Wiltshire Fire and Rescue Services are on the scene with 50 firefighters and sadly a number of ambulances. No word on uh, casualties yet. Uh, the poll's still running. Would you support a tax on meat to help the environment? You can vote on my Twitter, on my Telegram, and on my uh, YouTube. Let's take a call, uh, I hope we can, from Robert in Dunfermline. Go ahead, Robert. Hi, George. Hi. Uh, mentioning Salisbury, I went to school in Salisbury, so mm. my heart's going out to any possible victims there. Sounds but, utterly horrific, I must say. Hmm. Well, the, the subject I was calling about was uh, this monarchy versus republicanism. Yeah. Now, you're a republican. Yeah. But earlier on, you were putting the monarchy down, um, not personally, as in not personally as in the Queen, but the monarchy generally. Mm. But you did get a bit personal with Charles. And yeah. The stuff did, you said yeah. about Charles, you know, I, I think I agree with you. I think, with a, lot people, most I think a lot of people agree with me, Robert. Yeah, um, he is seen as a bit, you know, sort of not odd. for purpose. But odd. Um, but he could surprise us. Now, well, isn't the real problem, Robert, that uh, we have to put up with him whether he surprises us or not? Uh, that well, he is the head of state, whether we like it or not, or whether he's a complete disaster or not, he'll remain the head of state. Isn't that a little, well, childish, Robert? I don't think it's childish when you compare it to the scandalous election of presidents, for instance, in America. Oh, yeah, I'm I not mean, proposing an executive uh, president. I mean, I believe we, uh, when Her Majesty passes... Long life to her. I hope she fully recovers uh, for, as okay, I said, yeah. there are hundreds of reasons. Uh, but after her demise and all things must pass, uh, it's time for a referendum in Britain on whether to continue this system of monarchy 
or not. That's my view. So you would advocate going down the same line as the United States? Mm. Absolutely not. Sorry, I, I thought I just said that. I'm not advocating an executive presidency at all. I think that would be uh, wholly deleterious. That would be out of the frying pan into the fire. Uh, I'm talking about a ceremonial uh, president, a president for state occasions, uh, not for politics. Uh, he needn't even be an elected president, at least not directly elected. Uh, in Ireland, I think uh, uh, the president is elected. I'm not even proposing that although I could be persuaded, uh, I think Parliament should pick uh, the president and that president should have purely state uh, functions, not executive functions at all. No, I believe in, uh, in, in a where, parliamentary, where parliamentary democracy. Where would the power lie? It's got to lie with... It has to lie with the Parliament. Uh, with the Oliver House of Cromwell. Oliver Cromwell bade the country in blood to establish the primacy of Parliament, and the rest is just a fiction. And what about the House of Lords? Oh, I'd abolished that long ago. I'd, I'd have abolished that uh, half a century or a century ago. Despite the fact that in fairly recent times they've gone against the government and with the will of the people. Well, when, when was that and how often has that been? Well, not very often, I've got to say. No, I'll, I'll, tell you what, I'll tell you, death, the death warrant for me, Robert, was uh, when the putrefying corpses of the British aristocracy were dragged off the grouse moors into the voting lobbies in the House of Lords to ram through <laughs> the poll tax, to ram through Mrs. Thatcher's poll tax, uh, which made the Duke pay the same tax as the person that emptied the Duke's dustbin. Uh, yeah. That was uh, the very, very end for the House of Lords for me. Did the Duke's dustbin have rats in it? Well, if it was in Glasgow, almost certainly. <laughs> Robert, yeah. thanks for the call. Very nice to hear from you. Let's go to Victor in Birkenhead on COP26. Go ahead, Vic. Hello, George. I want to tell you and the whole world the main cause of global warming and acid rain is hydrofluoric acid, which is the cheapest way of making petrol. And you might recall in the early 1980s, all you heard on the news is acid rain, acid rain, acid rain. And then in 1986, on May the 8th, in the Times newspaper, which I used to read before Rupert Murdoch ruined it, uh, Professor Terry Mansfield from Lancaster University and John Newall wrote that exhaust from motor cars and refinery flare stacks was the cause of acid rain. I immediately wrote to Professor Mansfield who replied that his research was now being paid for by ESSO and that we should be more concerned about other toxins that occur in the environment. Should ESSO, where I have also worked, on their fallen refinery have shown Mr. Mansfield how they make petrol. They did not use hydrofluoric acid for making up till 1990. I, I don't know what they do there now. And uh, anyway, that's what happens with the hydrofluoric acid. Is the, uh, it burns away the ozone layer and 
lots of shuns infrared rays through. And uh, well, everyone's an expert uh, on these things, as on uh, on uh, COVID and uh, all the rest of it. I promise you a full dress debate next week, Vic. On, uh, on global, I promise you a full dress debate next week on uh, global warming, COP26, and so on. Many thanks for the call. Let's hear from Abdi in Minnesota on Patrice Lumumba. Go ahead, Abdi. Uh, Salam alaikum, George. How are you Salam rahmatullah barakatuh. Go ahead. Hey, I actually wanted to piggyback on our idea from last week, but I just had a beautiful piece on Africa. And I wanted, actually, it was one of my plans today to ask you to do a show about Africa sometime soon, but you beat me to it. <laughs> no, we only had a small part. Uh, we will have to do more on it. And I think VJ is the man to lead it, don't you? I, I think his analysis oh, is brilliantly oh, eloquent most, and clear. Most definitely. It was the first time I heard about VJ and I learned a lot just yeah, listening to him. He's the top man. He's a, if I was yes. the if, if I was the president, he'd be my foreign secretary for sure. Now, what oh, do you want to say about Lumumba, Abdi? I w I wanted to say I wanted to say I wish as an African or from the African continent, I wish we had carried away with his idea of United States of Africa. Yeah. Every time, every time that those names come up, always that the colonialist and their. Um, Cutting the legs of the African leaders just shows up from the background for some reason. And honestly, to be honest with you, a great, great example is the man from Burkina Faso that you guys have mentioned it. Thomas Sankara. Thomas Sankara. Thomas yeah. Sankara didn't have long. He didn't have long, but in the time that he had, he showed that he, he could it. have built a land of upright people. Exactly. The, what he did was that country he uplifted. Up until today, there are brothers that visit his grave every day. Every day they visit his grave, Thomas Sankara. Now, Just funnily understanding enough, how funnily he was enough, important to them. Funnily enough, he was murdered by his friend. Uh, by his, they were in a rock and roll band together. Kampori uh, murdered uh, Lumumba. Uh, exactly. Just as uh, as uh, sorry, Kampori murdered uh, uh, Sankara. Just as uh, Mbuto murdered Lumumba. Murdered Lumumba. Just exactly. As exactly. Zia murdered Mr. Buto. Just as Pinochet murdered uh, President Allende. You see a pattern here uh, of foolish, exactly. sentimental uh, uh, weaknesses. Uh, of not exactly. uh, ruthlessly uh, policing exactly. the police. Exactly. And that brings to my mind what the great Bob Marley said. How long shall they kill our prophets while we stand aside and look? It's a very, very powerful line that from a very, very powerful uh, song. Abdi, I promise we'll dive deeper into Africa in the, the next uh, few weeks. Now, uh, uh, Jamie Blackett says, to save the planet, we should be eating more grass-fed meat, not less. Well, Jamie is my uh, principal advisor on agricultural matters, so I have to concur. Hells Bell says, no, I, I don't support a tax on meat, and I'm a vegetarian. It would take us back to medieval times when poor people ate nothing but turnips. Very, very good indeed. You see, this is one of the problems. 
with this uh, global warming lark. It all implies making the poor poorer and making the poor countries less developed, stopping the development of the poor countries and making the working people in the developed countries pay more, eat less, have less. This frenetic attempt to persuade us that growth is bad when in fact it's only growth that can lift our people out of poverty and lift the poor world out of uh, poverty. Orion is in Oakland. Didn't I clash with him last week? On you go, Orion. Welcome back. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Thanks, bro. <laughs> yeah, long live the international working class. I'm telling you, VJ was so great, I never heard him. Uh, You know, I'm 77 years old, and I'm totally ignorant of so many things that you know about. And I I, I thank you so much for bringing all this to me and my friends. I'm trying to get it out to everybody. So hopefully a million people, maybe 10 million, you know. Uh, and uh, I wanted to continue with this this thing that divides the working class because I know you're for the working class and I'm for the working class, so we have to figure that out, right? I wanted mm-hmm. to ask you a question. The Euros, you know, you had the Euros, and there was um, racist attacks against the Italians. Now, who who attacked the racist? Who were the racists that attacked the Italian uh, spectators that were uh, watching the Euros. I, I don't know about that. that. What I do know is there was a, there was a torrential abuse on social media, which is not the same thing as attacks. We should be careful, keep in perspective uh, what an attack is and what a disgusting tweet is uh, against England's uh, black players that missed the penalties. Uh, although when analysed, most of those uh, vicious, racist tweets and other social media comments, Instagram was particularly vile, uh, came from outside uh, of the United Kingdom, came from other countries. So look, there's racism everywhere, Orion, in every country, and there's racism amongst every race. Uh, there are some black people that uh, Uh, look down on people that are blacker than them. There are black people attacking Asian people on the streets of San Francisco. Uh, There are Arab people that wouldn't dream of letting their daughter 
marry a black person, uh, even though the Prophet Muhammad uh, picked and freed a slave, Bilal, and gave him one of the most important roles in Islam. Uh, Muslims like to tell you that they're not racist, but if you're a black man, try asking a Saudi Arabian if you can marry his uh, daughter. So look, man, there's racism everywhere. We have to fight it. I hope you don't misunderstand my stance. We have to fight it, but we have to fight it with a positive program to unite all the working people of the land, of other lands, of the world. Because if we allow race or religion or sexual orientation uh, or gender uh, to loom like an Everest on the, uh, on the public uh, landscape, then all we're doing is weakening uh, the working class and weakening black as well as white working class people, gay as well as straight working class people, trans as well as uh, men and women, uh, born men and women uh, working class. We're uh, dividing our forces when in fact we really need to unite. That's the difference between me and the identity politicians. You are watching uh, the most unusual mother of all talk shows of all time, brought to you from a hotel room in Milton Keynes. Have you seen Milton Keynes? It is a veritable Paris, at least after the nightmare journey of uh, seven and a half, nearly eight hours uh, on a train uh, which terminated well short of London, which is why I'm not in the studio. So apologies for any diminution of quality, but we've still got the very best of guests. But before I go uh, to our next guest, what did you think about ABBA's digital concert? Personally, I thought they were in, I don't know, an even tide home. Uh, I thought they were well over the hill, but apparently uh, they're still treading the boards. Well, if the Rolling Stones can do it, I suppose ABBA can do it also. But they've got a digital concert going on. So what did you think? Here's the next uh, quiz, uh, the next poll. How do you feel about ABBA's digital concert? Money, 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 it's a rich man's world. That's A, it's a rich man's world. Or gimme, gimme, gimme a ticket, I better stop singing my wife is looking at me angrily uh, but you can vote on my twitter on my telegram and on my uh youtube now garland nixon is the very best uh independent political analyst in the united states and how lucky are we that uh at uh, absolutely no expense he agrees to join me so often here on the mother of all talk shows garland nixon welcome back I hope that didn't surprise you that it's absolutely no expense. I hope the agent didn't promise you. <laughs> well, well, thank you very much. And, and I hope to get you at absolutely no expense on my uh, radio show in Los Angeles soon. Absolutely. That's, uh, that's a, a rain check, as you say, in the United States. Now, your president's over here, uh, Garland. Uh, we used to say uh, in the days leading up to, uh, uh, to D-Day that the problem with the Americans was that they were overpaid, oversexed, and over here. Well, now you're all over here, uh, including the uh, president who had uh, 
an unfortunate time to say the least uh, with the Pope in the in the Vatican and has arrived here with his 80 car cavalcade for an environmental conference to denounce uh, fossil fuels and demand uh, uh, state and and also personal action uh, on that uh, without going into the dirty details it's it's getting to the stage where president biden is uh, an embarrassing elderly relative now isn't it Yes, it is. And um, he's probably far better being away from the United States right now um, if you look at the approval numbers for, for uh, President Biden. Right now, um, yes, he's mumbling incoherently, but I think uh, after nine months, uh, people are pretty much accustomed to that. However, when we look at the numbers, 71% of Americans feel that the country's heading in the wrong direction, including including 48% of the people in his own party, the Democratic Party. We've got uh, his approval ratings have dropped 11%. His disapproval ratings has increased 15%. And uh, the Democrats are looking at a couple of um, a couple of elections in traditionally blue states, uh, which would be Virginia and New Jersey. Jersey here in, in two days. So there is a great fear in Democratic Party land that nine months and 10 days into the Biden administration, um, things are not looking uh, well for the future. Now, these are real blue collar states. What kind of elections are they for what? Okay, so these are there's a number. You know, of course, the the most important is the governor, the gubernatorial election, which would be the governor of the um, of the state. In Virginia, particularly, Virginia is a, is a blue state, uh, very uh, traditionally blue state. It was a southern red state. However, a lot of people moving out of the metropolitan areas into northern Virginia has turned it blue um, for for quite a while. It's been a, duck, a decade since the um, since the the Republicans had had a, a lot of power in the in Virginia. However, um, Kamala Harris is there. The Democratic Party is not feeling very good about their chances, even though the numbers say that they're tied. And they're actually running a guy named Terry McAuliffe. He is a Clinton acolyte, very wealthy man, and he has the charisma of a bag of ice. Um, the interesting um, issue here is Donald Trump. The um, Republican candidate has been careful to, um, you know, utilize the popularity of Donald Trump in that state without bringing Donald Trump in because the Democrats have been pushing, you know, this guy's a, uh, this guy's a Trumpster. But but within the last several days, I think they've recognized that it hasn't moved the poll numbers whatsoever, and they're trying to adjust more so to policy. Um, if I had to predict, I would say the Democrats will likely lose Virginia. I would say they have an 11-point lead in New Jersey. If they lose New Jersey, they're in a whole lot of trouble. Um, but right now, um, I, I'm, I'm thinking they're going to lose Virginia, and uh, things are going in, in the wrong direction. Keep in mind, we're only nine months into the Biden administration, and it's very poor timing from the, uh, for the Democrats because Biden's signature legislation, the well, I call it, he calls it Build Back Better, I call it the Billionaires Back Better legislation, um, is being, I'll put it like this, they're saying it's failing, I say it's being exposed as a fraud. They put forth social programs and things that would be very, um, very welcomed by the base of their party and quickly cut them all out and bare bones it down to something that the Republicans would be happy with, which was probably the plan in the beginning. Well, the U.S. media was very clear about it this week, uh, that business has triumphed in the debates around the, uh, the, uh, the bill that Biden once 
floated as being a panacea for America's ills with something in it for everybody. But the rest have all been thrown overboard, haven't they? In this stimulus package, it's for business, but the working class, the middle class has been completely uh, devastated, ignored, kicked overboard, not wanted on voyage. Yeah, and, and, and part of the discussion, this has also brought up the discussion of the military-industrial complex. One of the things that has been floating around in the discussion in, in America is the fact that the United States Congress um, actually gave um, the military-industrial complex $25 billion more than they asked for. They came up with a, with, a, with a particular number. Joe Biden said, great, I'll take that number. And the U.S. Congress says, oh, no, you won't. You're not getting out of here without taking another $25 billion. Meaning Meanwhile, some of Joe Biden's signature legislations and definite campaign promises, such as free free, um, community college, which only cost $9 billion, was cut out. I think the mainstream media tried to make it a war of personalities. They came up with two names, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, and tried to argue that these people were commandeering the legislation. But I don't think a lot of Americans bought the idea that a freshman senator who, who chairs no committees, who has no power, who's been in two years in power, is more powerful than the president of the United States. I think most people realize that it was this was a stalking horse operation and that Joe Biden is certainly on the side of those who um, who bare bones this legislation down into, you know, just more money for uh, corporations and nothing for the working class and those who put him in office. Yeah, I mean, uh, these uh, recalcitrant uh, senators were were pushing at an open door. As you say, this was probably the intention all along. And yet, and yet, uh, the much vaunted squad, uh, the uh, awkward uh, uh, leftish, uh, in a kind of fashionista sense at least, uh, that that came on uh, to the scene over the last few years, got elected over the last couple of years, they're going along with it, aren't they? Yeah, and the, the squad, you know, uh, initially they were very popular in America amongst, amongst the left. That popularity is dramatically waning. People are realizing that the squad is good for a lot of um, strongly worded tweets. You know, wouldn't it be great if we had fill in the blank? And then they will vote for legislation that has none of the things that they've tweeted. It's the tweet squad. Um, and if you want strongly worded tweet, tweets, you're going to get plenty of them. But when it comes to um, supporting um, empire worldwide. I mean, AOC follows Juan Guaido of all of all people. So I think the squad does not have a lot of um, support from the actual left in America. It's just the, you know, the neoliberal um, synthetic left, as Caleb Boffin, a, a term I use often uses, um, still supports them. But they're of no value to actually supporting legislation that would help the poor, the working poor and the working class. In those circumstances, I mean, one used to say, I used to say that the Democrats and the Republicans were two cheeks of the same backside, uh, just like Labour and the Conservative Party here, two cheeks of the same ass. Uh, That's different now, or at least looks and sounds different because of Donald Trump. Now, Donald Trump may be no different uh, to the rest of the political class. The point is, he looks different. He sounds different. And the, uh, the political class are so desperate to stop him, people suspect that he might be different. That's a dilemma, isn't it, Garland? 
Yes, it is. Because the thing about uh, Donald Trump is he's not a member of the technocratic class. The technocratic class that Joe Biden comes from argues that the system is fine. We just need a better system manager and Joe Biden would be the better system manager. Joe, uh, Donald Trump not being a member of that class can basically shoot from the hip. And on the odd occasion, Donald Trump will say something that the working class hears and says, yeah, I'm, I'm all for that. Yes. So Donald Trump can step outside of the establishment paradigm on the odd occasion. And basically what Donald Trump ends up with is a scenario where people look at him and they're like, well, Donald Trump's not much of an option, but they're worse. And that's how that's that's how he wins. He just he doesn't have to do anything. They look worse than him. And and every now and then he makes a humorous and very accurate statement attacking the machine, sometimes from the left, sometimes from the right, sometimes from, you know, whatever direction he, he may happen to uh, come from on a given day. And, and he has success. And I would say right now. If Donald Trump were to run against Joe Biden, he'd destroy him. I mean, let's face it, who wouldn't beat Joe Biden right now? He is not um, well respected, not just like he is not respected as a competent leader. The uh, the Democrats and the, and the deep state, let's uh, cut to the chase, uh, are so desperate to stop Trump that something might happen. Uh, something might happen to him uh, or some move might be made to try and uh, legalize, legal him out of the uh, next presidential election. A bit of lawfare uh, might be mounted perhaps around the uh, issues of the so-called insurrection uh, at the Capitol, which frankly was uh, a, a boisterous demonstration in most people's countries. Uh, there were people killed, but uh, they were almost all of them uh, Trump supporters that were killed. But maybe around that issue, maybe around issues of familial corruption or tax like they got Al Capone, they may try to keep him out of the election, which risks social disorder, civil uh, disorder on a very large scale in the United States as his supporters uh, feel that they've been robbed, been cheated, and Trump uh, leading them. I mean, that might make uh, January 6th look like a tea party. Or they allow him to go in for the elections, in which case he wins. And this time it's no more Mr. Nice Guy. That's quite a problem for the ruling elite in the U.S., isn't it? I agree. And let's be honest, it wouldn't be the first time the deep state and the machine, the neoliberal machine attempted to use um, extra democratic means to um, preemptively coup Donald Trump or um, to or, or, or to get him out of office after he left. The recently uh, information, more and more information has been coming out about the infamous Russiagate hoax scandal. I guess hoax is a bad is the wrong term, really. It was an illegal coup operation. Um, we're finding that it's getting closer and closer to um, Hillary Clinton. And the other, uh, I think, important part about that is, and if, particularly in relation to this discussion, is it's getting less plausible that the FBI was uh, misled. You know, they're trying to argue that they were misled by people, that they were given false information. They're trying to use the same argument that George Bush and his team used when they went into Iraq, that they were misled. It's getting harder and harder to... Um, uh, to make that argument, uh, recent information has come out that the um, 
the FBI, when they found out, when they got bad information about Donald Trump uh, using a server or something, an Alpha Bank server to communicate with the Russians, they immediately went over, they got a warrant, and they seized the server. However, when it came to the Democratic National Committee and their servers were allegedly infiltrated by the Russians, they didn't seize the server. They just asked a friend, a company that was quite friendly to the Democratic Party to tell them what was on the server. So it's getting harder to argue that the FBI and the intelligence agencies were not involved in the preemptive coup attempt in 2015, 2016, et cetera. And that being said, I would agree if they tried and failed the last time, I would certainly expect that they would, would take a different angle. Who knows? Joseph Misfood has, Mis, Misfood has, has disappeared into ether. Maybe he'll pop up again. Maybe we'll find out who that guy is once and for all. I want, my next film is about that very coup, uh, Garland. I hope to interview you for it. Uh, how the British stole an American presidency. And that's exactly what they did. Steal and the Russiagate uh, hoax uh, were responsible. Not since the British burned the White House uh, has a, f a foreign country intervened so successfully uh, in American politics. It wasn't the Russians uh, that stole that presidency. It was the British. How about that? Hundreds of years after George Washington. Garland Nixon, thank you for joining us. As always, a very big thanks to all those that uh, turned out in very inclement weather at Kingston uh, last week uh, for the the, uh, the showing of my latest film, Killing Kelly, about the strange death of Dr. David Kelly. It was a splendid evening, spirited question and answer session, and even some nice homemade cake from uh, Grandma Giles. So thanks to everyone that was involved. There's one more scheduled uh, of these showings. Uh, it's Monday the 15th of November in the Crown Plaza Hotel in Manchester. But I warn you, when I came on here, there was only nine tickets left. Uh, so literally, it is the last few tickets. Uh, and we can't, uh, we can't run it for a second night and we can't get a bigger venue, I'm afraid. So there's the details. Uh, you can check now. I hope uh, that before the end of the show, the last nine of the tickets that uh, have uh, gone. Now, we asked you about ABBA's uh, digital concerts. Uh, how did you feel about them? 78% um, of you think it's pure greed. It's a rich man's world, money, money, money. 22% uh, of you, though, said, give me, give me, give me a ticket. I'll let you on a secret. My wife will definitely be wanting to buy a ticket. Now, Moats, the podcast, is again a chart-topping five-star hit all over the world. Not making this up. Listeners are loving the highlights of the mother of all talk shows. The people of Nigeria, Pakistan, Iceland, Slovakia, Mexico, and Singapore got the Moats podcast into their top 10 charts this week. And that's not counting our listening community here on Sputnik Radio uh, all over the world. If you're not yet listening, then please subscribe. You can take Moats on the go with you. It's a distilled 19-minute version of uh, the full show. Let's go to the phone lines. Hear from Kieran, who is in Glasgow. Go ahead, Kieran. 
Good evening, George. A happy Halloween to you, my good friend. Um, thank give me, you, give me thank you very much. <laughs> yes, give me, give me a ticket for Patty Smith tonight at the Royal Concert Hall. Uh, now you're talking. Now you're talking. Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm sorry to hear about your train experience. It sounds like a lost uh, chapter from Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. <laughs> very well said. Indeed, it, indeed it felt like it. Yes, um, I would like to know if you're attending any of the events at COP26, George. No, I'm not, no. Uh, my security is uh, can't be guaranteed in Scotland, I'm afraid, Kira. Uh, so I, I, I don't go out and about. That's why there's no showings of killing Kelly. You may know that somebody's already been convicted of threatening to shoot me in the head and uh, someone else uh, who denies the charge is up on trial next week. In fact, on Monday the 15th. Uh, for threatening the same. Uh, so, no, I'm not uh, safe to uh, be out and about in Scotland. It's a pity, but that's how it is. Well, it's great to hear from you, George. Anyway, you take care of yourself, my friend. Thank you. Thank you, Kieran. Good, good, good of you to say so. Anthony is in Detroit on the US budget. Let's hear from him. Anthony, welcome. Hey, haunted Halloween to you, George. Well, the yeah, the all this Halloween. This is an American thing, Anthony. You sent all this stuff over to us. We had a perfectly innocent Halloween tradition until the U.S. Uh, exported this satanic ritual that it's become. <laughs> anyway, happy to you. On the way. On yeah. you go. Okay. Well, you know, the tax on meat idea just really made me chuckle because it made me think of this quote unquote infrastructure bill, which is also, yeah, as Garland said, kind of packed with some random social programs that we definitely need. But, you know, depending on who you ask and which day of the week, it may or may not have those in it. But I was able to ask my congressperson on another radio program, how are you going to invest in a privately owned infrastructure? Because like our electric company, it's the company has shareholders. And on top of that, they want us to subscribe, quote unquote, for greener energy and pay more in our bill each month to the company for, I don't know, so they can be greener. So I asked my congressperson, how are you going to invest in this? And she says, oh, you know, and she's one of the squad people. And she says, oh, we're going to get more uh, solar panels and make them fix the neglected areas. So I'm laughing at this bill, and then Canada wants to challenge. They have a proposed tax credits for union-made USA electric vehicles, and uh, in the bill, and Canada wants to challenge that with under the USMCA, as well as 11 uh, Republican governors for the union-made stipulation. So it's just hilarious. Yeah, I mean, I was on a, a, like you on a, on another show. Uh, this week, and uh, I was I was making the point, you know, all this enmity against China stealing the American workers' lunch. It was actually the American capitalists that stole the workers' lunch and flew it to China so they could turn it into a bigger banquet for themselves. Uh, the, the the fault for all these things lies at home. The main enemy is at home. This is. Something I've been preaching all my life, Anthony. Yeah, and their solution seems like it's just a print a trillion dollar coin, and we all know that goes to J.P. Morgan first. So it's so sad. And meanwhile, you know, the only person uh, Kamala Harris can get a lap out of is herself. She was campaigning for the Virginia governor, dude. It's so funny. Well, uh, she may well get egg on her face, uh, Anthony. Nobody likes a loser. 
Thanks for the call. Tarif is in New Orleans. Always a pleasure, Tarif. Go ahead. Thanks for taking my call, um, Mr. Gallery. First, I'd like to say before I get to my comment, my comment, hashtag free joint science, free dong enhance off Haiti. Now, this dealing with the science case. This is what the journalists around the world have to do. It's obviously the deep state that's in Britain and also United States want to keep Julian Assange in, there, in the prison as long as possible. Basically, they want him to pass away to send a message to the world, you know. So what the journalists have to do, whatever information they have, they have to start releasing it on the deep state because they got to show the, they got to show the deep state in the United States, the corrupt bureaucrats in, in Britain or whatever, that it's not only on journal science can release information that they can release information too, because the thing is this: the, the deep state is not stupid. They know once journal science is released, that he gonna go back releasing information again. So the deep state is actually in the catch twenty two. So it's, it's damn if they do, damn if they don't. So the best thing is you got to start releasing information against them. Exposing them for the crimes against humanity, what they did in Iraq, the United States, and throughout the world, dealing with different programs that they was doing, regime changes. The 600,000 people that the um, International Federation represent, they got to use them. They got to start sending out emails. They got to start sending out stories with hashtag free joining science every single day. You got to build up a momentum. The more they release these important classified documents, that's going to um, build support for joining science. It just can't be one man releasing this information like Jordan Science. It got to be all of us. You see what I'm saying? All I do. Uh, I sense, uh, Tarif, that the tide has turned on uh, the subject of Julian Assange. I think the heavy artillery of uh, people like Amnesty International, International Federation of Journalists, and so on, uh, and, uh, and liberal grandees of all kinds, uh, who have been silent largely for uh, the decade that this saga has been going on, has begun to tell. And I'll be surprised uh, if, the, uh, if the British appeal judges uh, find for the Americans. I'm surprised that Joe Biden is persisting with it because I take your point about damned if they do, damned if they don't. Uh, but uh, the Democratic Party is uh, ever more tarnished uh, by its, uh, its involvement in this sordid case, which has been corrupt and corrupted from the, the very beginning. The only thing I'd say is, it's passing strange that the International Federation of Journalists are right behind hashtag free Julian Assange, as are the British National Union of Journalists, and yet, and yet, virtually nothing appears on the mainstream media from those very journalists that are members of those unions and federations. And some of Julian's worst attempted assassins have, in fact, been journalists. After this quick break, it's my old parliamentary colleague, conservative grandee, Stephen Norris. Stay tuned. By the way, there was a former uh, legend of ours, Damien from Brighton. He was a regular for many, many years, a very loyal follower of the show. We had a bit of a, a political falling out, but he was very good enough to come 
uh, to the showing of Killing Kelly last week. Uh, Damien, uh, your calls are always welcome. You might even get reinstated to legendary status. For the moment, the number one legend is Norma in Bristol, and she's up next. Go ahead, Norma. Hello, George. Um, I'm ever so glad you're back. I got Thank quite you. nervous for you, really. Yeah, we, um, we were a bit nervous too. There was there were pregnant sure. women, pregnant women on board. There were claustrophobics on board. It was baking hot. There was no air, no windows. Uh, doors were locked, even when we were sitting at Northampton Station. The water had run out. You can't drink the water in the toilets. The toilets were beginning to well, uh, Bidenize. Uh, it was a nightmare, but nothing compared to what appears to have happened in Salisbury. So I shouldn't dwell on it. Norma, I don't. Uh, I, I don't think there's been casualties actually, from what really? I've gathered. I know. Let's that, say that's the case. Anyway, um, I haven't got much to say. It's just that um, money. I'm talking about big money. Did you realise George Bush? He's on a speaking tour of America at the moment. My and God. each time he speaks, he gets paid £170,000. Wow. That is true. That's what I've heard. I mean, oh, I... Oh, oh, all, I, all I can say is that Tony Blair would be more expensive, and, <laughs> but, then, but then he can speak. Uh, I'm not sure what George Bush would do for that 170000 I mean, what, swing from the trees? He's, uh, or color, shows his colouring books? Yeah, but George Bush, I know it, all the horrible things that happened. He did have a sense of, peculiar sense of humour. So perhaps, uh, not for all the money, but, you know, perhaps he would make people laugh. Well, I know he I, would make, he would make I, you laugh. I would not, if, if I went to see him, I would try to arrest him. As a citizen's yeah, arrest, I would make uh, an effort. And if I couldn't, I'd throw my shoes at him, as that uh, young Iraqi yeah. journalist famously yeah. did. So they probably wouldn't let me anywhere near them. Uh, I once met Bill Clinton by, by infiltrating a reception line in Glasgow, funnily enough. And he looked at me and said, uh, have we met before? I said, no, but you killed one of my friends in Iraq, uh, the Arab world's uh, greatest painter. Uh, Leila Al-Atta. Uh, so uh, he, I, he was hurried away from me. So the same uh, would be if I, I went to see George well, Bush. But I, I must know. say, I must say the rehabilitation of George W. Bush amongst the liberal classes, the chatterati, the commentariat, is one of the most obscene phenomena of uh, recent times. I must say, Norma. Well, you just, I, I just get so disillusioned. I mean, even our Chancellor of the Exchequer, is, he says, oh, well, we cannot, this is too expensive, that's too expensive. He's one of the richest men in our country. You know, I, I just, I think money, 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 and it's absolutely over it's the It's worth the, our Chancellor of the Exchequer, I'm going to talk to Steve Norris, I hope, before the end of the show, about him. Our Chancellor of the Exchequer is in his own right, worth three hundred million pounds. But he married well, as they say, yeah. Norma, he married the daughter of a multi billionaire. So one can say uh, that universal credit cuts are not going to touch the life of Rishi Sunak 
Britain's finance minister oh, or chancellor of the Exchequer. Am I right? Well, yes, and I mean this universal credit thing. Even though he's done this paper thing, it's not going to give him very much more. I mean, probably ten pound extra a week, and that's not as much as a packet of cigarettes. <laughs> Well, I wouldn't know. Uh, it's a filthy <laughs> habit. Stop it. Thanks, Norma. Steve Thank is you. in. Let's hear from Steve. Go ahead. Okay. Yes, Steve. Hi there. I just want to say that I'm a big admirer of yours. Thank um, you, And happy Halloween. Thank you. As well. I heard that Anthony... I don't actually celebrate uh, Halloween. In fact, I've yeah. forbidden my children to celebrate it. I think it's well, a satanic, uh, dark uh, event. I, yeah. But thanks for the spirit. No, no, I live in Leeds and I was born in Coat Bridge, actually. So it's Halloween every day there. So. <laughs> I'm not hearing a word said against Coat Bridge. It's one of my... <laughs> no, I love it. I love it, really. A dear green place, a grotto to Christian it's, civilization. Well, it's, uh, it's where the best people, apart from, I think, maybe a couple of you politicians, I've actually gone from. But anyway, I digress. I have a yeah. question about uh, Jamaka Shodji. Yeah. So, um, I watched a couple of documentaries recently, and I heard that maybe you can obviously uh, fill me in here, but I heard that there was a 9-11 connection with what Jamaka Khashoggi actually knew with uh, about what happened on 9-11, because there was links between what happened on 9-11, the people who were actually involved in it, to the Saudi royal family. And uh, Jamal Khashoggi was very closely associated with that inner circle, even though he wasn't a part of it. That's the first question. I was just wondering... Uh, well, let me deal with that one separately. Uh, Jamal yeah. Khashoggi, for those who don't know, was the Washington Post columnist... Yeah a resident of the United States, a friend of mine uh, whose hand I uh, shook, shook many times, whose cheek I kissed many times, who was murdered was by Saudi Arabia in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul yeah. and then uh, cut into little pieces and his uh, remains flushed into the drains of Istanbul. Uh, I'm, I'm certain that Jamal, as a very well-informed man, uh, knew a lot of the crimes of the Saudi royal family. Uh, I don't know anything yeah. specific about 9-11 in that regard, but it is a matter of historic record uh, that, uh, that uh, the Saudi royal family had long supported uh, Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda, yeah in Afghanistan and had long supported, bountifully, uh, the, uh, the fountainhead of the extremist Islamist uh, school of thought that Al-Qaeda yeah. and later ISIS uh, uh, reflected. Quickly on your next question, Steve. Sorry, yes. Um, I was just going to ask another question about, well, it, it's about the Middle East. So... Why do we have to bother? Um, obviously, the United States, the UK, Canada, most of the world has its own resources to, um, to support themselves. Why do we have to rely on corrupt, murderous regimes 
uh, when we are we don't really apart from Israel and Palestine I understand that uh, why do we what what are we owing to them apart from fuel to a fire obviously we don't want to be there for the rest of our lives well, look, uh, I'll tell you what, it's too, late, you know what I mean? it's too late in the night to go deeply into that, Steve. I know, I don't... But, uh, I suffice, like. uh, suffice to say this, as Nye Bevan once said, Britain is an island made of coal surrounded by fish, and it is quite a triumph of organisation to run short of both. And that is exactly where we are now. We have one-third of the number of fisher men and women in Britain than the French do, whilst four times the coastline, three and a half times the coastline. And that's one of the deficiencies of how we have allowed our natural resources to atrophy and waste and uh, hand them over to the depredations of French uh, trawlers, industrial super trawlers. And of course, we flooded all our coal mines. Uh, but that uh, my affection for coal, clean coal, carbon captured coal will never die. Uh, but I won't walk around the COP26 conference talking about it. I need to go, Steve, because I've got another Steve on the line. My old friend with whom I've traveled the world, served in parliament for decades with, even though he's a conservative he is genuinely a friend of mine, and it's always a pleasure to interview him. Steve Norris, thank you for joining me on the mother of all talk shows. Rishi Sunak walked on water just a few months ago, and now I'm seeing briefings and sniping against them all over the place. What's happened? Well, I think the interesting thing is that there are two Tory parties now. There's the Tory party that you might call, if you like, inspired by Thatcher, believes in a low-tax uh, economy, um, believes that the state should withdraw from uh, many of the activities in which it could otherwise be engaged. And for those people, and Sunak is probably closer to them than he is to um, uh, the other side of this debate, uh, for those sort of people, what's going on at the moment financially is appalling. Um, this is no longer a Tory party, I hear a lot of my friends say. On the other hand, there are those who say, look, we've just been through a pandemic. Uh, last year, the government spent close on £400 billion, as you well know. And therefore, right now, we have to do a few things to stimulate the economy, to get that growth going. And of course, in particular, to make sure that we start the process of levelling up. And that's going to mean higher taxes, uh, higher spending, and not something that you might traditionally associate with conservatives. I, th I think worrying about Rishi Sunak's profile is kind of missing the point. There's a deeper thing going on here, George, which is, as I say, this sense in which the Tory party is finding itself divided on this crucial issue of just what does the party stand for these days? Well, Boris Johnson, of course, stands uh, for all things to all men. He's been through multiple uh, phases, and I know that you have been critical of him in the past, as I have. Um, as Rishi Sunak rose, it seemed to me that Boris Johnson began to fall. Sunak falling doesn't seem correspondingly to have seen a rise in his shares 
of Boris Johnson. Is that how it seems to you? Yeah, it does. But I think, George, to be fair, you've been in politics long enough, uh, you and I, pretty much the same number of years. Um, I don't read too much into this. I think there's no doubt that, you know, Sunak, for example, is seen by many Tories as the obvious heir apparent uh, to Boris Johnson. And Boris, like most leaders, probably doesn't actually care too much for people who are too close to him and have been talked about as their successor. So there'll be some tensions there. But the real tensions are actually among, you know, many of the members of Parliament, particularly on the Conservative benches, who do see this dichotomy between the old traditional Tory, as I say, kind of Thatcherite, if you like, uh, low tax, low spend economy, get the state out of your life, give you more of your life back, control more of your own life and so on. Many, uh, much of that, I might say, I have some sympathy with myself. And those who say in the wake of the pandemic, you know, where we spent an incalculable amount of money, um, as most countries around the world did, in order to try and stem the impact of the pandemic, you know, we now are facing a different uh, a different paradigm. Uh, we made a great virtue of austerity. And when um, opposition parties complained about austerity, we said, well, look, you know, I mean, we've got to get spending under control. This was very much the George Osborne line. Nowadays, I think there's another, um, uh, if you like, an another proposition out there, which is maybe we do need to start spending more. Maybe we do need a higher wage economy. Um, and that particularly, of course, is true for those of us like you and me, both of whom who voted for Brexit, on the basis that we did not want to mainline on cheap Eastern European labour again. And we wanted to actually increase the, the, the wealth of our own people, particularly in the north of England. That's where the real dichotomy lies, I think, in the Tory party. It is a, a fascinating dichotomy, and neither is it a false one. It's very real, as you describe. Uh, but uh, it's really a trichotomy now, because uh, what we have is um, a group of people in the Conservative Party that appear to have uh, taken their uh, marching orders from Greta Thunberg. Uh, the Tory, uh, David Cameron hugged a, uh, uh, hugged a hoodie, but he also hugged a husky. But a section of the Tory party now seems to have gone rather green at the gills. <laughs> you could say that as a very good description. I mean, my own personal view of Greta is that she's a well-meaning young lady. But it really is quite extraordinary that she gets the amount of attention she gets. I mean, she has a point of view, of course. But there are others who point out that in pursuit of, uh, you know, a, a, of a carbon-free economy by 2030, 2040, 2050, whichever date you choose, um, this country is imposing an enormous cost on itself. Uh, and when you consider that we already have one of the, the best records globally in terms of addressing climate change and that, you know, Mr. Xi, who isn't actually going to be at COP26 and Mr. Putin, who isn't going to be at COP26, um, both could, uh, could arguably far, be far worse offenders than the UK in terms of the impact of climate change. There are some of us who say, can we get a little bit of realism back to this debate? I don't think that's an unreasonable thing to ask, George. I mean, I wish... No, I, 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 I agree with that. Uh, but it's your leader that says we have to lead the world on it. Uh, we, pr we produce 1% of the world's emissions. Why should we be at zero uh, come 2050? Although I've got to tell you, after our long life in politics, Steve, I don't trust anybody that tries to predict what's going to happen 
happen a year come January, never mind in 2050. When I hear people making promises about what they're going to do by 2070, I must say I laugh. Well, I, I won't be alive to find out either. That's, you know, we're at that sort of age, you and I. But no, seriously, I actually agree with you. You see, I do think that we uh, have done well. It's not just that we're 1%. After all, we're a relatively small island when you compare us with other vast land masses. It's that we've actually already taken a great many steps to reduce the impact of carbon. We've massively increased the amount of renewable energy that we generate, and we're now not quite... Um, uh, 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 it, it, you know, free of reliance on coal, but very, very close to it. This is all good stuff. And therefore, you have to ask yourself, is Boris's enthusiasm merely for the cameras around COP26? You know, he is, after all, if you yeah. like, on the world stage. I wouldn't personally put too much... Uh, uh, heaven forfend that Boris Johnson would just be doing something for the cameras. At least not climbing up on one of those chairlifts and getting stuck. Uh, well, thanks, Steve. I'm sorry it was so short this evening. Hope That's to talk to you again soon. Steve Norris, former Conservative Minister, Member of Parliament and twice Conservative Mayor of London candidate. It's been marvellous for me. Hope it was for you. The podcast had another incredible week with a rise of 14% in total downloads. That's on top of last week's 10% increase, making us not only one of the fastest growing political programs on screens and on radio, but now in podcasts too. We're now one of the top political podcasts, not just in the UK, but also in Switzerland, Japan, Germany, Thailand, Taiwan, and believe it or not, the UAE. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts and remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And why not leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts? If you're a Spotify user, please follow us and share with your friends so more people can enjoy most. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.